Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of MGR Unplugged. Today's guest is Greg Charbonneau. He's the Vice President and General Manager at Odyssey Aquarium in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yes, you heard that right. Odyssey Aquarium in Scottsdale, Arizona. We do have aquariums in Arizona and that's thanks to him as well. Greg is the kind of person who's not afraid to step out of his comfort zone and face new challenges. Mobility actually has played a key role in his professional life. And with that, he's held a variety of positions at several theme park locations in Ohio, Florida, New Jersey, Georgia, and the Bahamas, where he became the Vice President of Marine Operations and Marketing at the Atlantis Bahama Resort. That's a, a, a major resort if uh, you're all familiar with it. But that wasn't it. If, if that wasn't enough for him, he actually decided to transition. And next challenge for him will be to uh, move all the way across the mainland USA to tackle yet another major uh, operation and start up the Southwest largest public aquarium, expanding over 200,000 square feet, 2 million gallons of water, 60 exhibits and about 30,000 sea creatures and uh, he told me that I didn't count them I think they are about 30,000 but I had to take his word for it and over 500 species so anyways I had a great time chatting with him it was very uh, it was a lot of fun I wish I would uh, the, the room where we actually had the interview was fantastic it's called the investor room and um, it had like a huge, huge window behind us with a sea of uh, a view of the aquarium with uh, sea rays and sharks and all kinds of other fish and species. It was fantastic. And uh, I learned a lot about things that happen behind the scenes. Um, I'm sure everybody in the audience has been to an aquarium uh, at some point in their life. But it's, it's incredible the challenges that this um team members at the aquariums go to to make sure that everything goes smoothly as as it should be you know so there's a lot of uh, little details that are uh, unknown by people and uh, we we talk about some of them i hope you guys have a lot of fun with this uh, podcast as well and without further ado here's greg charbonneau all right, so uh, Greg, thank you for uh, joining me today at uh, MGR Unplugged. Thank you for making the time. I know you're a busy person, and uh, catching you on a Friday is, must be like a, a bonus for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for having me. Friday is a good day. So I know, it's perfect. Yeah, I have to tell you, from all the podcasts that I've done, this setup, and I will take pictures for the audience to see, is fantastic. Uh, when I was trying to tell people I like to do podcasts in my office because I control the environment and the sound, and most, most importantly, I actually take people away from their office because they're always distracted with phones on this and that um your your assistants told me that this this room the investor room will be uh, the perfect location and i was kind of like yeah you know everything is the perfect location until it's not but when i walked in here and i saw this huge background that i have with sea rays and sharks and all kinds it's like a huge window to to the ocean basically mm -hmm. and you don't see that in arizona very frequently so i'm, I'm really impressed yeah it's our, this is our vip room our private room for our investors and vips and it's uh, it's a wonderful room. It's peaceful, tranquil, quiet, and I'll tell you, you, you have investors out there. You don't convince them here. I don't know what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have this private is, access to it. So this is, uh, this is fantastic. All right, so let me get started briefly with uh, your background. Obviously, we were just talking briefly before the podcast, and you are now fifty-five, which is a beautiful age. The double nickel. <laughs> uh, I'm to fifty-five too, and people already know it. So at least for the entire year. Uh, but let me let me ask you about your uh, upbringing. I mean, uh, where did you grow up? Um, you know, family environment and all that, children, friends, siblings, all that stuff. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Michigan outside of Detroit, about 45 minutes north, Fraser, Mount Clemens area, I'm oldest of five boys. Uh, mom and dad were uh, professionals. My dad was a pharmacist. My mom was a nurse. And growing up as a kid, I always used to say, yeah, my dad pushes drug and my mom works nights because she worked the night shift. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was it was a typical boy household that's for sure beautiful and uh were you always there or did you move around as you grew up to different uh cities or we uh i grew up in the the house that i was born in grew okay. up there until okay. i went away to college and then moved off to florida after college so okay. i pretty stable family mm -hmm. in terms of did not move around i was did not have a military right. background one of my brothers did join the military he was in the marines mm -hmm. for over 20 years so he okay. moved around quite a bit and uh where, where did you go to school to a college? I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio, believe it or not. And uh, that's uh, and then you you uh, you studied uh, marine biology. That's that's what I read. 
I did. That's amazing. I did. You know, when I went to college, I originally wanted to be a school teacher and a swim coach. And I remember freshman year, uh, one of my teammates, Rick, he and I were talking, you know, typical, hey, what are you majoring in? He said, marine biology. And I don't know what it was, but it just snapped me back to some childhood days and and memories. uh, What childhood experiences you had related to marine biology um, growing up? I mean, that... that I, I honestly, all my um, um, knowledge of marine biology is what I see when I watch Discovery Channel shows and I see these guys that are, I, I'm actually, I grew up by the ocean myself. So, and I'm, I love the ocean. I love, you know, uh, marine life in general and I'm marine <laughs> or water sports. But uh, when I have the, the image of a marine biologist, it's basically a person that is studying like marine life in general, mm-hmm. you know, like growth patterns and migrations and things like that. And, you know, they're always with uh, experiments in labs and things. and uh, So what made you, th- did you have any background knowledge of what a marine biology is? No, not really. I grew up on a boat. My, my parents had boats, and we okay. were always out on the water all the time and awesome. fishing and such. But then I also remember one of my babysitters, Rose, took us to SeaWorld of Ohio. Okay. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the stands watching Shamu, and I remember telling her I was probably eight, nine, seven, I can't remember, a really young kid, right. saying, I want to do that one day. And it just, talking to Rick on the pool deck just snapped me back to those days. And I immediately changed my major from education to marine biology. Awesome. So, so um, was it what you expected? It is one thing you're imagining, like your vision of saying, yeah, I want to be a marine biologist. But I, when you actually started studying, did you ever have a, a time where you said, maybe this is not what I want to be? Or, or, or you got actually more and more involved as your years went on? I got pretty entrenched really, really quickly in the marine lab there. I became the undergrad assistant. I was the lab doctor for a period of time, the lab chemist. I always tried to get really involved. I learned early on as as my professor exposed us to other professionals that I definitely wanted to do marine biology. I knew I wanted to go into the public aquarium arena, not necessarily research as an NGO or academics. And then I also quickly learned within probably my junior, senior year of college that I really wanted to pursue marine biology, but I also wanted to become a business leader one day and, and be the executive director or the CEO of an aquarium. So I, I knew that pretty early on. That was kind of my next question because um, <clears throat> you have a unique combination of assets between obviously your your scientific background, you will, versus or combined with your marketing and, and business background. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not something that you see a lot, you know. And that's one thing that was a contract for me when I was learning or, or, or researching about you that with that kind of background, you also are super, extremely successful in the mm-hmm. business world. So uh, how, how did you combine or how did you transition from, from the marine biology uh, major to, to the business side? Really, I, I became a, a dry sponge in a bucket of water, and I had some really great mentors as I was growing up, coming up through the ranks on the animal side. When I started out my career with SeaWorld, they had a lot of educational opportunities. They mm-hmm. had a lot of different committees. So I joined the ergonomics committee, the safety committee, the dive control board back then. Uh, there was this guy that came in and, and taught you how to move smart, so I offered to be the instructor for the move smart. So I I participated in every program that the company offered mm-hmm. me, but also the bosses and the mentors I had, Ray Davis and Frank Maru and Tim Binder and even Jane Cooper later on in my career, they really knew what I wanted to do, and they were tough on me, but yet right. they, they allowed me to do mm-hmm. what I wanted to do to learn the business side so I could take the biological technical skills and marry mm-hmm. them with the business side. When you say in SeaWorld, or uh, what, where, where, situate, where location were you at? I started SeaWorld of Ohio right when I okay. graduated. Actually, before I graduated from, from college, I received a job, SeaWorld of Ohio, working with dolphin seals, sea lions, and penguins. And that was a summer job, making $5.40 an hour, full-time. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. No, <laughs> you're not going <laughs> to trade stocks, that's for sure. And then uh, shortly there, at the end of the summer, I, was, uh, I interviewed for a position down at SeaWorld of Florida in the aquarium department, and I got a 60 cent an hour raise bump and moved down to Florida. Awesome. So what year was this when you went to Florida? That would have been 1987. Okay. 
Yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, let's go back a little bit to family um, and your current family. Obviously, you're a married person, and I believe you have two daughters. I do, yep. I have two wonderful daughters and an even more amazing wife. Thank God she puts up with me. My daughters are 26 and 24, and uh, one just moved back to the Scottsdale area. Oh, she, really? Okay. Yeah, she put herself through MBA school. We helped our kids with undergrad, and we said, well, graduate school is on you guys. So so where is the other one? She is outside of Atlanta. She had graduated from University of Georgia, and my oldest just went to George Mason for her MBA. Okay. All right, good. So one of those, uh, how, um, when did you meet your wife, and uh, was it like a, a college age? Or basically, I'm trying to, to come up with where the marine biology and the wife uh, and the jobs and your mobility and everything yeah. kind of coordinated. She, uh, we met when we were seniors in high school. Okay. Well, when, yeah. when we, uh, I was from Michigan, she's from Maryland, and we went to the college for recruiting on the same weekend. And we met in the, it was called the Falcon Mobile. Bowling Green State University had this custom van. It was brown and orange. And there was myself, Kristen, a good friend of ours, Annette, and a couple other people. And we went out to dinner. And that's where we met the first time. And we didn't start dating until sophomore year. Okay. And, and what's funny so you guys is, keep in touch I mean because I'm the same age and I know that when I had my former girlfriends and they were also some of them out of the country back when I was in Spain it was very hard to keep in touch with yeah. girlfriends you know letter in the mail what in two weeks yeah. and things like that <laughs> a little different than today <laughs> yeah yeah you know we we uh we we flirted our freshman year in college all together and and I funny story she still even to this day busts my chops I had told her, I really don't want to date anybody in the swim team. And she's like, okay. Well, I started dating this other girl, Kim. And all the swimmers kind of lived on one floor. Kim and Beth, they lived on a different floor in the dorm. And I didn't know she was on the swim team for like the first week or two. And so Kristen's like, you're, you're dating a girl on the swim team. Yeah, I know. But I didn't know she was on the swim team there at first. And so she's always like, so what did you talk about? And I said, well, you know, we whatever. You know, yeah. so uh, she still to this day busts my chops. But <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, they have good memory. Yeah, you. they do. <laughs> Women have this uh, extra memory in their brain, and yeah. they remember little details that you're like, what? Just remember that. Uh, well, that's that's awesome. So, obviously, you guys uh, got married, had your kids 26, and so they are already uh, uh, big girls, and yeah. uh, they're not married yet, or are they, do they have family? Or, or? No, they're both single, so if okay. there's any you know successful, good-looking guys that want some girls, let me yeah. know. But <laughs> now, you know, I, we, we moved around a lot with my career, but you know, part of your question was, was, was with my wife and support of moving around, and she had a, she's got a fantastic attitude in that she understands my career and that you have to move to advance, mm -hmm. and she knew I wanted to advance and be successful. Right. She's in the HR arena, so she can move around and find a job right. much easier than I can. So now you are, um, as far as your career goes, give me a quick synopsis of the different places where you worked out and how you progressed to ending up here in Scottsdale at the, uh, at the Odyssey Aquarium. Well, I started out at SeaWorld with that corporation and I worked for them for, I think it was about six years. And then I went over to Disney and worked at Epcot Living Seas for about a year and a half and then went back to SeaWorld of Florida. So I was in the Orlando market for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I went up to Mystic Aquarium up in Mystic, Connecticut. And that was a, a complete startup, complete renovation of that aquarium. Then from there, I went to New Jersey State Aquarium in Camden, New Jersey, which was a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Mystic was a nonprofit as well. And halfway through my 10-year stay in New Jersey, it became Adventure Aquarium. And when I went to New Jersey State Aquarium, I was vice president of VP of Husbandry, I think was my title. And I was brought on board to help because that aquarium was going to go through a transformation. It was going to go from a nonprofit business model to a for-profit. It was going to double its size and renovate the existing building. Mm -hmm. And it's a state-owned physical asset. And it was run by the uh, New Jersey Academy of Aquatic Sciences, the nonprofit arm. And so in 2004, as I was helping with the expansion and the renovation, I was given the opportunity to interview for the executive director job. And I received it. So in 2004, I became the executive director of Adventure Aquarium. So mm -hmm. I had taken it from nonprofit to for-profit and then created a whole new guest experience program, hired all new staff and such. And then from there, the company moved me down to South Georgia, running a theme park. And that theme park was unique, Wild Adventures down in Valdosta, Georgia. It had a roller coaster, a water park, and an outdoor concert venue, as mm -hmm. well as a zoo integrated throughout it. And then from there, I went to Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas 
was there for three years, and now I've been That's here. That's what it changed, right? I mean, going to the Bahamas from Georgia. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it, it was an amazing experience, both Valdosta and, and Bahamas, for a couple of reasons. Number one, going from the Northeast market to mm-hmm. Southern Georgia market. Right. Totally different mindset, pace of life. Exactly. Way, way different. And, you know, very strong religious beliefs down there. And it was our first time learning different religions and how people behave. Like we were Catholic mm-hmm. versus being Baptist. And it was, a, it was a unique experience. Down there, it's all about being recruited to join their church. Right. You know, from a you know, non-work related mm-hmm. um, standpoint. And it was, it was our first time of actually getting slapped in the face of having to really slow down because we're so used to the Northeast and going down to South Georgia where right. they don't tolerate the Northeasterners the way right. we would tor- tolerate each other. And, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. we had to really quickly learn to slow down. And then that actually helped us going to the Bahamas, being the only white person in sometimes a room of 600 people right. and being looked at and not being appreciated for your skin color was a humbling and rewarding experience being on that other side of the table. Mm-hmm. And I would go home from work every day telling my wife, I, I just... I don't get it. I don't. I don't. I don't look at. I don't look at color. I look at the person. Right. Right. right exactly. Yeah. And uh, it took me about nine months to earn the respect of of a lot wow. of the Bahamians down there. And what was your uh, position there in Atlantis? Uh, I started out as executive director of Dolphin Key, so kind of managing mm-hmm. the the animal operations, and then within uh, about two years, I became vice president, and I was managing all of Dolphin Key cruise ship operations, sales and marketing on the cruise ships, sales and marketing in the resort for all the encounters, Discover Atlantis, and photography. So when you left there, were you, um, where will you go next after that? Here. Do you come here? here? Okay. Yeah. So so what made you leave that? Or it was, how did you find this opportunity here? How, how was this? Uh, it's a big trip from uh, the Bahamas to Scottsdale, Arizona. So kind of wondering how that came out. <laughs> Well, I get that question a lot. You know, there's constant <laughs> variables of sand and sun, at least. Yeah. But uh, how this came about was I was meeting with uh, Rochelle and Judy, two people that were working for Amram Kanishinsky, who's the CEO and founder of this destination. And we were talking about some animals that we had available. And they spent the whole day with us, with me at the park there in at Atlantis. And halfway through the day, they said, hey, we'd love to take you out to dinner. I'm like, "Uh, okay. That's always interesting. And bring your wife. Okay. So I call up my wife. I'm like, hey, they want to take me out to dinner. I don't want to go, but, you know, they asked, you know, and they've traveled all this way. Be careful to be listening to these podcasts. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) They know the story. (laughs) Uh, And then, because they're part of the story. (laughs) And so so Kristen says, well, I just don't want to go. I said, look, we're going to go to Luca Cari's. She said, Okay, I'll go then, because it was a restaurant. We liked to right. go on the on the bigger island. And halfway through dinner, they were like, "Hey, we have this this uh, GM executive president. You know, the title hadn't been established in position. We'd love for you to take a look at it and entertain it." I said, "Okay, well, I'm not looking. I, I was not looking. I had no desire to leave the island because I, I just loved it down there, and so did Kristen." So we get in the car that night, and Kristen, you know, she doesn't really swear and uh get in the car doors closed and she just looks at me and she just goes what the <laughs> just happened see i told you you could curse i didn't swear though <laughs> i, I didn't know. swear and then and i go I, I i don't know and she goes did you blank know about this and i said no i did not so you know uh fast forward this was in i don't know november i can't remember now and they called me up and said, we want to get you here. And I said, okay, I can't get there till this date. Okay, we'll get here. And I said, well, I'm going on vacation. Well, can't you get here on your before vacation? I said, well, I work and let me see what I can do. So I went home to Kristen and said, hey, they want to fly me out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to miss vacation, but I'm going to fly early. And then I'll fly and meet you at the girls on, on vacation. So she said, okay. And then uh, got the preliminary offer. And I said, my wife's got to come and see this place okay well can she come this weekend so i call up kristen i'm like hey when can you come and uh so she came a couple weeks later and 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 she said greg you know i'm not ready to leave the bahamas and the funny story there is she didn't want to move to the bahamas right and then when i said this opportunity came up she didn't want to leave the bahamas but going back to our conversation earlier this is another 
aspect of her supporting my career. She said, this is the first large aquarium in the country to be built in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You have to take it. You, you just can't pass up this opportunity. Plus, I knew about the whole destination, the growth, and everything. That division of Amram was very, very appealing. And so here I am today. So did you, before um, moving to Arizona, did you have any experience or did you know well the lifestyle here or, or was it completely no, new for you? Completely new. I came here in 2010. I competed in the Ironman here. Uh -huh. And I remember landing and being here and I was thinking, wow, this is a pretty ugly place. Did they take you in the summer by any chance or they were nice to you and uh, moved in the, f in the winter or nice weather? Time? I moved in February. Okay, well, that yeah. was nice. And the race was in November. So both time periods were very, very nice from a weather mm -hmm. standpoint. But I just, I didn't appreciate the desert and the mountains and the different zeroscapes that are here at all when I was here for a quick weekend. And uh, that was my first experience. And then thinking everything looked the same, but now I just absolutely love it. Yeah, I, I um, well, first I came to from Spain and I ended up in Washington, D.C. and I lived in that area for seven years. Not, never actually in the city, in, in D.C. I lived in uh, Rockville, Maryland. Oh yeah, uh, my wife's from Bowie, Maryland. Yeah, and swam so, in Rockville. Okay, yeah, I uh, I lived there. Um, I lived also in uh, Arlington, Virginia, which yep. I think is where your daughter. I was actually uh, right there, and I worked in Arlington, Virginia. This uh, mm -hmm. this company that I was working for was right by the courthouse, right downtown. Um, and then I lived in uh, Fairfax County, you know, all this, yep. all this from McLean, all that stuff. But um, so when I came to Arizona, I mean, obviously I got used to the weather and I'm from Spain, so I'm used to nice weather and all that stuff. And uh, over there it was kind of rough, the winters, you know, the snows and this, the, uh, the blizzards and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Words I never learned before. I was like, what is a blizzard? Like, you see it. <laughs> I, was like, I used to go running in the morning. And I was like, I think my eyebrows are frozen yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I'm not sweating. This is like I have a icicles in my yeah. <laughs> eyebrows or something. So, anyways, I uh, when I moved to Arizona the first time, I came. I think it was March, like Easter or something, and uh, it was nice weather. I actually went to my friend's house, pool and everything, and I, I really liked it. And I said, "Oh, this is like Spain. Just no ocean nearby, but it's, the weather is very nice. Palm trees, I love yeah. it." And then I came again in the summer, and I was like, "Holy shit! This is uh, it's really <laughs> this hot. Is, uh, this takes something <laughs> to get used to." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I proud myself of being like very tough, but it was like, man, this. And I like running and all that stuff. Yeah. And I was like sweating bullets, getting lost all the time. No GPS and phones or nothing. I was just running and getting lost and thinking that I'm going parallel. The street goes around. You know, I'm like, I hope you carried water, dehydrated, all uh. that stuff. <laughs> I never forget that I went I went running in the morning and I thought I was going through two parallel streets and doing this and the street kind of curved around it became like a loop so I never thought that I left the street but I actually did and when I tried to go around I was in a different place and I didn't have a there was no phones or anything back then to find yeah. a way around I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> it's oh. like anyways it was it was fun now in retrospective but uh, yeah Arizona is it takes something to uh, to get used to you know uh, people ask me what's it like in the summers and I said well stand in your oven with a blow dry on your face and that's what yeah, it feels yeah. like you know? exactly that's what it is I mean yeah. it's uh, it, we have some but uh, honestly I I, uh, I like it I mean now I've been here obviously 20 something years now but uh, I really liked it I mean you get used to uh, the yeah the heat and all that stuff and, and reality I mean we you don't need to do much I mean I like to do a lot of outdoor stuff but still the heat just kind of becomes like a thing that you ignore you know it doesn't bother me much right right I mean it's the same thing for me when you're working and doing something you're mostly indoors and then if you go hiking or mountain biking or whatever it's like okay you go early you're gonna sweat that's the whole purpose of the yep. workout hydrate yourself and that's good so i'll take that over snow and salt and gray, oh yeah exactly skies, everything yeah i mean you, you look at the places and they have all the snow and the salt and the tornadoes and the mudslides and this and that it's like you know what i'll take a little sunstorm every now and then and i'm done <laughs> you know? well we're really lucky we have no natural disasters really per se exactly we got haboobs and exactly. some nasty winds but yeah you know we don't have hurricanes uh, and, and the lifestyle is, is very nice much more laid back like uh, here i have time to do stuff you know back east i was like always running you know like running out of town the days seem to be shorter there i don't know yeah. maybe <laughs> it's like i was never seeing daylight sometimes yeah <laughs> living early coming late always dark you know um so describe to me now that we're back here in us we're already moved to scottsdale so tell me what is your typical day like um obviously there's no I, i'm sure you don't have a the same day twice you know but normally the, the part that you control you get up in the morning what time what's your morning routine what is a normal day in your life well, now it's, uh, we get up anywhere between 4.20 and 5.20 and usually do Orange Theory in the morning uh, and then uh, go home, 
get ready, pack my lunch, eat some breakfast, and head out the door. I'm usually in the office by between 8.15 and 9.45, depending on what, what I have going on. All right, on. so you get up. I'm glad that you say that because I... I I get up at five usually, and people think that I'm like totally weird, though. <laughs> 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 and, uh, yeah. I, and I'm actually ready to get up when I get up at five. I'm awake from four thirty, and I'm yeah. thinking, oh, it's too early to make noise, or you know. Yeah. So I, I'm glad I find some other uh, person that is just as wacko as I am. So, yeah. so you like to go? You go running in the morning, or what? Are you I do. Doing? I, right now, I'm doing a lot of Orange Theory, and then my family decided to do a half marathon in January. So all four of us are going to do a half marathon in January, so we're okay. intermittently running and doing Orange Theory, okay. which makes it kind of fun. All right, so exercise, get ready, come to work, and then once you get to work, what is a day like here at the, uh, at the aquarium? Well, like you said, it's never two days are alike. There's just so much happening between 20,000 animals, 70 exhibits, 2 million gallons of water, intermixed with miles and miles of electrical conduit. Anything can happen any given day. <laughs> That is for sure. And then you bring in millions of guests coming through the door and several hundred team members. There's a, a wide mix of things that happen every single day. We have code atoms, separated childs. We have code silvers. We have fire alarms that go off sometimes. We have, really? uh, wow. we, we do drills all the time. We have HR meetings. There's just a wide variety of things. And I, I have right now I have, I think it's 13 direct reports. So I try to have one-on-one meetings every week with uh, those folks. We have team meetings. And then my involvement on the corporate side is much bigger than just the aquarium. So I'll be helping to design with Paradise Earth or the hotel that we're going to be building, our San Diego project. Or we're working on um, land deals, you know, with being that we're on Salt River, Pima, Maricopa Indian Community mm-hmm. Reservation land. We work with the landowners to try to uh, develop the land. And so the 35 acres that we sit on now has a lease with the landowner, landowners, the 52 acres to the north, same thing. So every day it's, it's very, very different. Today, this morning, I had a two-hour meeting on pricing with combination tickets incorporating Pangea, who's one of our tenants here at the destination, mm-hmm. with the aquarium and butterfly and, and the Titanic exhibit. So it, it varies every single day. Did you, um, with all these things going on, obviously you, you become almost like a firefighter here. You're, you're putting out fires left and right, uh, which is kind of like where all people mm-hmm. at the higher level do. Um, do you find yourself like that is challenging sometimes? Uh, I mean, obviously it's hard to please all the people all the time. Do you find a little uncomfortable sometimes like saying, okay, well, I know what I need to do, but like second thought thinking, okay, if I do this, it may be upsetting this group or that group, or what is your decision-making process when you have to <laughs> execute a decision? <laughs> every, every day is, is a struggle. And you know, I have a mantra where we need to focus in on financial responsibility, team member morale, and guest experience simultaneously with the same level of priority. And you know that's, that's, it's, it's almost impossible. It's like trying to juggle three balls in the air, but you're, you're lifting the three balls all at the exact same mm-hmm. time and trying to juggle them. It's a, it's a constant struggle. And the team member morale is not only with our, our, our folks on, that are on our paycheck, the human beings, but the team members are also the animals. And so we have an immense amount of responsibility to take care of those animals and having a strong animal welfare program. So every day, the decision that I may make or that I may influence has an effect on finances, team member morale, and guest experience every single day. Mm-hmm. And so if I don't make the right decision, I fail, which is okay. We always learn from it. But in the center, when I make that decision, I think of those three things, but then also I look at our mission and vision and say, okay, is this, deci- is this decision going to upset one of the three pillars, or I call it the three-legged stool, because if one gets longer than the other in terms of focus, it gets wobbly, and I- am I going to go away from the mission and vision that we have as a company? And so my stressful times in, in making those decisions, I do one of three things. I look at the triangle, the three-legged stool, I look at the mission and vision, and then I also will seek guidance with the, the team members, the directors that I work with every day, the senior leadership team. I've got a great team, super fortunate to work with the folks that I mm-hmm. do, talented. And so I will bounce things off of them as well and just do a gut check sometimes. And so my decision-making tree, so to speak, is stressed every single day, but I try to keep it centered in focus by leveraging mm-hmm. those two aspects. 
two questions. One of them is <clears throat> in making those decisions, do you sometimes find yourself in a situation where um, it's kind of like a point of no return that you're going to make a decision where if it doesn't work out the way you plan, there's no way back, like kind of like a burn the boat type situation thinking, okay, we're going to go full speed this direction, but there's no backup plan. We just need to do it. Yes, I think when it when it comes to um, if we want to do a new exhibit, mm-hmm. and we are we're we're expending all of our marketing dollars and using that as our marketing hook, mm-hmm. and that exhibit becomes a satisfier versus a driver, then it's it's you're scratching your head going, okay, where do we go wrong? Was it the creative of the marketing advertising campaign? Mm-hmm. Was it the placement of the marketing campaign, right. or was it the exhibit itself? Did it not have a product appeal in the marketplace? And uh, those are the big issues. Like we've had Monster Fish here with National Geographic. It was a great exhibit, but it wasn't quite the driver we thought it would be. We have Mighty Mike right now. He's the country's largest, one of the largest gators here. He's a great driver, but he's not driving as much as, as we really, really thought. So that brings me another question. Let me get back to the previous one. So how, how do you... Um when you make these decisions, you say that that's a stress level. How do you handle the stress? I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know sure what day, what time of the day you actually live here. And if you leave and you are able to block out work and then be a husband and be home and just kind of compartmentalize your life, you know, or if you kind of keep mulling your ma- in your head, you know, problems that you've had at work and kind of share with your wife, you know, yeah. conversation at dinner or something. How do you deal with the uh, distress at some point when you basically starts accumulating and then you get to a point where you just kind of explodes in you? Well, I think um, that's probably one of my faults. I, I would love to say I compartmentalize it and keep it in check, but I tell people all the time, my job is not one that I can leave on my desk ever because we'll get phone calls in the middle of the night that something's going wrong in the building or an animal is not looking well, and so you have to react. Um, I, I will talk to my wife, you know, I'll vent. Uh, and I have a thing with the, with the team here. Anybody can come into my office, close the door, and they say, I just need to vent. And they just rant and rave mm-hmm. and go off. That's nice. And uh, then they leave and then they, they feel better. So I would say um, I just do the best I can to channel it. And what helps me is if I keep my health in check and my physical feeling of, you know, working out and trying to keep that going and feel good about my in my own skin that helps me with my personal life and my professional life and if personal life is not going all that great but professional is i try to leverage one over the other um it this is a stressful job because you're reliant upon guest perception you're relying on an advertising campaign to drive a lot of people here and if you're not driving as many people as you want it makes it more difficult to do the great things that you want mm-hmm, to do this mm-hmm. is a high fixed cost business maintaining all of these animals is extraordinarily expensive it's, it's the kind of business that i think smooth sailing is expected and everything else is kind of like a struggle you know like like it's not performing you know on the outside it's smooth sailing but i guarantee it it's rough exactly. seas every day yeah, yeah. and and there's, I say this all the time, there's so much greatness going on behind the scenes. There are so many silent heroes that are not guest-facing, that are putting out fires every single That's day. We have, yeah. we have all of this circulating water in a building with electricity. It's a really caustic environment. It's salt water. We have to make up our own salt water. It's, there's a lot going on. And it's a lot like... Um, somebody who has irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, you don't know it when they're sitting across the table, mm-hmm. but inside, their insides are rumbling. Mm-hmm. It's, an aquarium is like that every single day because you're dealing with so many moving parts and water being pushed at high rates. Things happen. Mm-hmm. And, and what's great is you have the team of people that react, fix, and just move on every single day, nice. so which helps my stress. No, that's that's a great. Um, I actually relate to that a lot. The, the the beginning that you said when you said your your physical health, uh, I always say that you have, like I learned when when I, I think when I read uh, Stephen Covey's um, mm-hmm. Habits of Highly Effective People on fucking our our generation, but I I created like four pillars for myself that I need to always contribute, which basically I call family, fun, fitness, and work. Mm-hmm. 
So you can always put a lot of deposit into one account, but at some point you need to start yeah. contributing to the other three as well. So sometimes work demands 24-7 and you're going to do it, but you cannot do it forever. You know, So yeah. then your family is going to suffer, your fitness is going to suffer, your fund account is going to suffer, and you need to somehow find a balance where you kind of deposit time into each of those activities mm-hmm. to, to find the proper... Um, um, Health, you know, and, and fitness and health is the main thing. Otherwise, without that, you cannot do anything. And I, I agree 100% with you that when I handle stress and everything, as long as I feel mentally and strong physically and, and good inside my body and thinking mm-hmm. I still have the energy to get up in the morning, get my thoughts out of the way and work out and swim or this or that, yeah. one bike, whatever, you know, with nature thing, it's like bring me whatever you want. You know, it's just a uh, different, yeah. uh, <laughs> different mindset. Yeah, but you know, those days when they're thrown at you, it's being surrounded by really great people, you know, mm-hmm. my wife, the people I work with and my friends, it's, it's, it is a stressful job, but I also thrive on it. Right. The more I do, the better mm-hmm. I, I yes. am, the more, the more priorities I have thrown at me, the better mm-hmm. I am. I get uh, bored easy if I don't have a lot going on. Do you, do you feel like sometimes you talk to other colleagues or friends or people that in general and they tell you their problems so you're like... <laughs> that's nothing <laughs> yes but I don't say anything like, but you know I know you don't say anything but sometimes it's like okay so your yeah. coffee is a little cold this morning at Starbucks yeah. the guy gave you the long milk yeah. is that your problem for the day <laughs> yeah you know it's it's what's funny is we were talking earlier just a few seconds ago and I was thinking of you know your four pillars your four four things that you focus in on and there there are, there's a cadence in life where I get frustrated by it but then I laugh about it because Everything will be going good. Work's great. My immediate family is good. My friends are good. I had a great weekend, and then one of my brothers will shoot me a text that's bad news, or mm. they need something. And right. I'm thinking, can I just go two days? I know. You know, there's always something. Right? I know. But then fast forward to this past weekend, we we were talking before the podcast started about Wings for Warriors and and the gala that we that mm-hmm. we had and we hosted here at the aquarium. So that Saturday night, we hosted the Wings for Warrior Gala uh, for Anthony Amin, for Doc, and, and just what a great night. It felt so good to give back. And then the next morning, we did Heart Gallery, and we, we sponsored and we supported Love Up in the Department of Child Services with the Heart Gallery for kids that are up for adoption, trying to find permanent homes. And Governor Ducey and his wife were here for about an hour and 15 minutes. And I listened to the stories of the gala that happened during that night, that evening, and then looking at these beautiful kids, knowing that they don't have a family, that they're looking for a family. Mm-hmm. I drove home that, this was Sunday afternoon, thinking any problem that I exactly. have is nothing. It's just perspective. It is. I mean, these guys, these men and women in the military and even police today and, and firefighters, they sacrifice so much and the, the respect that they're given is not where it needs mm-hmm. to be, in my opinion. You always have a couple people that right. deserve that the disrespect, but in hearing their stories and being wounded and overcoming insurmountable odds mentally and physically, mm-hmm. and then these kids, it just, you realize, yeah, I've worked hard, I've bled at the knuckles, I've right. sacrificed, but I've but gift, at least gifted you got, life. At least you got a reward. Uh, sure. Your work was rewarded, and, yeah. and some of the kids don't even have a chance to, no. to get into that situation. So, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's like, I think it was Tony Robbins who said, who, uh, you know, we, we need to live a life that is more on appreciation rather than expectations. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are always expecting, expecting, expecting this and that. And then it's like, okay, why don't you spend more time appreciating what you already have rather <laughs> yeah. than expecting what you don't have. That's, that's the sure way to be unhappy all your life, you know? Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. Let me, let me go back to, you said, like, um, dealing with stress and then situations with burning balls. You put all your effort into an exhibit or something that doesn't work out. So, do you consider that... Um, like a failure or a learning lesson or how do you handle once we once you put an effort into a whatever project and it doesn't work out as planned which is it can happen i mean Mm -hmm. i mean you obviously do your homework but not everything is as it happens you know so so do you consider that like okay that was a mistake that was a failure that was a lesson that we learned that we're going to do it better next time how 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 do you get over that situation or how long does it take it to to basically move on and just say okay well, for me, it's uh, I'm highly competitive, which is good and bad. And for me, I have to move on. I, I can't wallow in pity. I can't be down 
with the team, but I can also be poly positive. I learned a valuable lesson once back in 19, uh, what year was it? 97. And, uh, the team wants to see you being human too. So there's a fine balance, right? Mm -hmm. So vent, get it out, but let's move on. Let's, let's, let's move on and not dwell on it. If I don't maintain a positive driven attitude, then the team's going to feed off of you and they're going to follow suit. Right. Same thing with my home life. If I go home and wallow in self-pity and I'm not driven and I'm not showing a good example, my kids are going to follow suit. And, mm -hmm. and, and both my wife and I were both A-type and driven. And my kids will joke today, like, we got a double dose of it. You guys are killing us. You know? <laughs> and they're both working really, really hard in life. So it's my mother-in-law used to say, pick yourself up and move on. And that's what Kristen tells me that she was told as a kid. And there's, there's some credence to that. But I think that what I like to try to do is figure out what went wrong. Was it the process mm -hmm. of the execution? Was it the planning of the process of the execution? Where, where did the failure happen? And how do, we, mm -hmm. how do we get insight out of it to make right. it into a positive so that the team feels good about it? Because the team, every day, they take these fa failures to heart. I mean, these are... In this field, one thing we haven't talked about yet, you're in this field because you absolutely love it. It's passion-driven. Mm -hmm. It's emotional. You're not trading stocks. You're not you know, flipping homes. It's taking care of animals, interacting with guests, and that is an emotionally charged product, if you will. And the team, we have about 70 animal caretakers every day taking care of these animals, and they take it to heart. And if there's anything that goes wrong, if, it get, if an animal gets sick, or there's a failure in the exhibit, or a guest does a lot of flash photography in front of our octopus, they take that to heart. And so figuring out ways to make them feel good about what's going on, recognizing it, learning, and then let's, let's move on right. at the end of the day. So obviously there's, there's the uh, <clears throat> business aspect of the, of the, of the uh, aquarium or the location, and then obviously the uh, taking care of the animals, like you mm -hmm. said. So How, how, how difficult is to do just that, take care of the animals? I mean, I, I've seen tons of aquariums in my life, most of them in coastal cities, mm -hmm. uh, major aquariums, whether it's San Diego, SeaWorld, some things like that, or Monterey, or even Spain, Valencia, whatever. Uh, but uh, an aquarium in the desert is something that is obviously a big challenge. You just mentioned before the, uh, the water, the salt water, the circulation, everything. Uh, to me, it's mind-boggling how you can have, right now we have sharks and, and marine ocean life behind us in in a place where in the middle of the desert 400 miles away from the nearest ocean yeah. you know it's a great question and i've been in the business what 32 years now and i have never worked in an aquarium that could draw water from the ocean what's called an open system exactly i've always been in a closed system so for me this aquarium in the middle of the desert was a non-issue because i've always had to work with closed systems, meaning you take in the raw water from the city, your, your, city, your cold domestic water, mm -hmm. you treat that, you clean it up, and then you add in anywhere from 24 to 27 different kinds of salts. You make up the salt water, you age it to some extent, and then you can start using it in all of the exhibits. So for me, it, it was, that was easy, because okay. it's been my whole career. Let me ask you one detail. So you said about the uh, 20-something types of salt. Mm -hmm. Is it the same water for all the species that you have here? Or they, there are some species that use more saline sol mm -hmm. solution than others or different types of salt water? I never actually thought of that, but maybe, maybe there is a situation where you have different types of uh, uh, levels of, of salt. Mm -hmm. That, good question. Not only the salinity level or the salt content in the water, some might be full sea strength, any, you know, what we call 34 parts per thousand. Some might be more brackish water, which right. are in the teens, mm -hmm. but then there's fresh water. But then there's also temperature requirements. That's right. There's pH requirements. Some, some animals like a little bit different pH than other animals. Some animals don't do well when the, when the water is super, super ultra clean. Mm. And then some animals don't do well when the, when the water is what looks to be dirty. It's not really dirty per se, mm -hmm. but it has a lot more organics in it mm -hmm. that some animals thrive in. So there's, there's a wide variety of different parameters that we deal with every single day. And the other aspect that we have to always monitor, they don't do well with big sudden changes. So you can, you can literally have a catastrophic event 
you could have a million gallon aquarium with 10,000 fish in it. And you can, in some cases, this is extreme, but it's an example. Mm -hmm. You could walk in the next day and have 80 to hundred percent of your population dead because something went wrong mechanically with a pump. And those kinds of things, you always have to be looking at it. And our aquarists, they can look at the water and they can tell if it's, if there's an ozone problem, there's a certain, like we use ozone to sterilize the mm-hmm. water for the animals as opposed to chlorine because it would kill the fish. And you can look at the water and you can tell when the ozone is too strong. There's a certain color and a certain right. look to the water itself, Tint. not even yeah. the animal's reaction. Mm-hmm. Then there's the animal reaction and the animal caretakers, they know each animal individually and they can tell when they're slightly off feed or they're not swimming in the normal pattern or the same you know, look in their eye, so to speak. And I know you're not supposed to be anthropomorphic, but we are. And and they look at these animals and like something's not right. So they'll, they'll evaluate it. So they're the, the power of observation in this field is super, super important. I don't care how textbook smart you are, how many scientific names, you know, right. I could care less if you could recite the encyclopedia, but Mm -hmm. if you're in tune with your animals and your fellow teammates, Mm -hmm. then that's successful because they're reading the animal, they're reading the situation. It's what I call the sixth sense of maintaining aquariums. It's the art side, the soft skills, not the hard skills of academia. So let me get to how, how do you uh, and this is more out of my curiosity and uh, you know you, you go to aquariums or even zoos and you see feeding the animals at certain times certain types of foods and everything uh, it's different when you go to a zoo and you give something to a tiger and you have this kind of exhibit with steaks or something but in an aquarium where you see within the same environment like uh, 20 30 different types of fish mm-hmm. that eat different things so I imagine the SDR, the, the feeding schedule must be like 20. <laughs> you know, that's, it's a great question. And the exhibit right behind us, for example, exactly. we have yeah. spotted eagle rays, we have Australian leopard sharks, we've got a sharp-nosed shark, Pacific black tips, and those other fish, the golden trevallies, right. which wreak havoc on feeding time. So what happens is each one of these stingrays, they each have their own symbol, mm-hmm. and the animal care staff puts the symbol underneath the water, and that's a particular animal's feeding station. And they'll do that all at the same time okay. so that all the eagle rays can eat. The, sp- um, the Australian leopard sharks, there's this platform with symbols and they're getting the sharks to come up and feed there because what happens, sometimes the golden trevally, the fish, they school up and they try to steal the food. Mm-hmm. There's uh, one time um, uh, at SeaWorld of Florida, we, we had a big shark exhibit. We had bull sharks, lemons, sand tigers, nurses, sawfish, groupers, and I think I'm missing one species, we found that we had to start separating the feeding stations and feed the different species of sharks all at the same time because the bull sharks were ramming the stomachs of the sand tiger sharks. The sand tiger was spitting up the fish. The bull shark was taking the fish, (laughs) which is not good for the shark. But so, you know, you have to, you have to think of those things. Um, You know, having this aquarium, what we'll do many times is, is we'll have a little tiny light up in the corner to mm-hmm. kind of simulate a little bit of a moon atmosphere because some of the f- fish need a, just a little bit of light to see so they don't, that there's no predation that happens. So there's all these little tricks of the trade, tricks, so to speak, right. that you have to do That'd every be great. day. I'm not sure if that's part of the uh, educational process when people come to aquariums. I mean, I've gone to many. I used to look at the fish and over under, and it's very cool, but I'm almost intrigued by that situation mm-hmm. the, the feeding i mean you have a little fish tank in your house and you throw a little flakes and stuff and every fish just kind of feeds it's like one size fits all type thing you know yeah no but that's not the case <laughs> no. and, and they get they get picky too we, we 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 break out about this aquarium about 960 pounds of food a day and there's a wide variety of food and we have some animals that will only eat certain kinds of food and, and you don't separate animals that make eat each other like uh what does it happen or it happens from time to time um you know for example we get that question about our shark exhibit all of the fish that you see in the shark exhibit are pretty much the same fish since we opened up Mm -hmm. uh, three years or a little over three years ago they get them every now and then the sharks get lucky sharks are very fast and powerful animals but they are they're not endurance athletes they are sprinters Mm -hmm. they fatigue really quick okay so they don't expend a tremendous amount of energy chasing the healthy fish you know, it's the dead, the dying, the injured, mm-hmm. sick. You know, they're, they're, those sharks are good in the wild because they, they clean up. 
so right. to speak. And so every now and then they'll get lucky with a fish and take it out. But because we feed about 5% of their body weight three times a week, it's a regulated diet because you don't want them too fat and too thin. It helps avoid that, that predation. Um, let's get to um, this aquarium, the actual facility. I know that it had, or I read that it had a pretty intricate design and construction uh, procedure. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to see if you could explain to me a little more than me just reading what I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, we, we joke in that uh, there's probably maybe three straight lines in this entire yeah, building. Right, and right. I think I was that's where maybe them. the architect <laughs> kind of fell asleep just for a little bit right. and drew a straight line as he, you know, as he or she. No rulers. <laughs> that was unique. The other thing is we have a several worlds first. Our Odyssey Voyager, it's a rotating theater. We have five pods. There's 114 seats in each pod. And every five minutes that rotates. And you see a different exhibit every five minutes. Nothing like that in the world. We have fish globes that are in our lobby where they're hanging from the ceiling and the filtration, the life support, is about 178 feet away in a different level. And our animal care team, make, they have to take a lift every day and go up, clean, maintain, and feed, and then come back down every day. We have, um, we have uh, Sea Trek upstairs, which is the only one in the world that's indoors in an aquarium and showcases fish from Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Our Great Barrier Reef Tunnel exhibit, we have been told that is the largest collection of fish from Great Barrier Reef in one exhibit in any aquarium. And then we have North America's largest Hawaiian broad rays. We've, we, we have a lot of unique attributes. We are also the only a business in the world where it's okay to take pictures in a bathroom. We have America's best restroom. I don't know. If, did you go into it when you entered no, today? We've no. got to get you in there. <laughs> it's a very unique restroom. Okay. We want America's best restroom. You won't find anything like it in the world. So while you're in there, you have views into the shark exhibit. There's no mirror. Wow. The mirror is like that window behind you. Wow. So it's, it's pretty unique. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, obviously that just kind of made me think. Um, this is a 24-7 operation, obviously. Yes. You, you, uh, people leave whenever they leave, but the, the animals are still here. So well, <laughs> somebody, we have staff 24-7. Somebody has to be here 24-7 yeah. or, or a shift that is basically always looking and monitoring everything. Everything. It can, it can be like, uh, well, okay, we're shutting down the lights. The last guest out. <laughs> last call. No, it's actually, <laughs> you know, it, what's interesting is we've got a very robust catering program here where, where guests can rent out the uh -huh. facility and have a catered, a catered event. We actually monitor the decibel level. When bands come in or DJs come in, 80 decibels. That's kind of our ceiling because mm -hmm. we don't want to stress out the animals. We also have a curfew. We can only go to a certain time of the night, mm -hmm. and then the lights have to be out for the animals. The sound has to come off for the animals. We have to make sure, just like you and I, we, we, we're, we have our sleep schedule and our work schedule. You need your melatonin to start working. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there's some days melatonin is not working and you can't, you can't go to sleep. Last night was one of those. Right. You know, where, uh, you know, the animals need their sleep time and their, their, their downtime and their, mm -hmm. their me time. And so we have to be, it's actually the opposite. You know, right. we have to be cognizant of that every single day. On the, on the business side, um, obviously this is a for-profit aquarium and everything, and you have a lot of um, different exhibits and everything. What is the main source of revenue for the aquarium? Is it uh, just list your guest visitors, or do you work with groups mostly? Um, what's, when you were working with your team as far as rates and pricing and all mm -hmm. that stuff, I actually think the, the pricing is very affordable, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion, compared to other places that I've been to. So w w when it comes to the financials of the aquarium, the revenue, w what is the major source of revenue for the aquarium? The major sources are admissions revenue, the, t the, the gated admission or the tickets. Mm -hmm. That's the main. And then you have your, your food and beverage, your retail and your photography, and then our encounters. We are, we are for profit. It is mainly admissions, and then we have our annual passes as well. But what a lot of people don't know is we do have a nonprofit foundation called Odyssey Aquarium Foundation. We raise money so we can provide scholarships to Title I schools so that kids who don't have the financial means can come to the aquarium and visit. We're also providing a couple college tuition scholarships to folks with a partnership that we have. And then we're also looking at some professional mm -hmm. development for staff and and so that nonprofit, we actually support that and raise money so that way we can give back to the community, such as the Wings for Warriors Gala right. and, and the Heart Gallery. We really want to give back to the community. 
So from all the, um, there's more facilities or attractions within this complex. Mm -hmm. um, there's the butterfly, there's the uh, uh, dinosaur. Mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously a number of them. Are they all part of the same um, group, ownership group, or they're all independent, just kind of um, together in the same area? How, how does the relationship work between them? Great question. Going back to the stress that mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, yeah. every decision I make also affects the de destination. So when, when the executive leadership team is meeting every week, we, we do every Tuesday, we take into consideration the fact that we're the master lessor on the land, we're the developer, and we're the landlord, and we're also the operators of many businesses. So we have many businesses here that pay rent that we don't operate. So we, every decision we make, we take them into consideration as well because their success is ours right. and ours is theirs. And if the aquarium gets a cold, everyone gets the flu because the aquarium is the, is the big anchor here. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to grow this destination. That's why we're getting ready to break ground on a hotel that hopefully in the next is six, the, uh, seven Hyatt, months, the Hyatt, okay. mm -hmm, yeah. the Hyatt place. And then we have the Paradise Earth concept that we have designed and we, we hope to build soon on the 50 acres to the north. We're, we're trying to create an entertainment destination as well as some other ideas that we have for the 50 acres that will make this destination glow, grow and, and flourish. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure that we balance every decision with our the, the three-legged stool, mm -hmm. but also the, the folks that have their own businesses that operate here, right. as well as recruiting new businesses for, we have about 14% of, of our leasable space available right now. We want to attract other tenants. And then we also have our own businesses that we have to manage. So we have to balance all of those at the same time so um the um paradise earth that you mentioned just now and also the um odyssey in the desert um are those new um attractions that are mm -hmm. being developed or or is that i mean they're going to be in this area too the paradise earth is a new attraction it's okay. going to be nothing like it in the world it's going to have entertainment theme park type attributes to it associated with a big indoor rainforest aviary with thousands of mm. birds. It's going to be a really, really unique experience. What is the timeline for that one, if it's available? Or well, if, if all the stars align and things go well, we, hopefully we break ground in another nine, ten months. Okay. That's right. if everything goes well. Right, right. I mean, those, it's hard to tell. But uh, All right, so I was, I'm going to start wrapping it up, and uh, I was going to ask you, you know, if you could go back 10, 15 years, you would do anything different uh, in your life in general, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. But is there anything that you would change now uh, that you would have done differently? There's two things actually. I'm going to go back a little farther. When I was in college, I was so uptight. I wanted to be a fast, great swimmer. I had teammates that were so much faster. And everything that I attained in swimming was earned with just hard work. You know, there weren't talent wasn't there. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be a lot less uptight. Then I think going back to the 10, 15 years, uh, working on my delivery style, I still need to work on it today. My heart and passions were in the right place, but sometimes my delivery style didn't make people happy, kind of pissed them off or I rubbed them the wrong way. So I would say going back and presenting myself better and being a little less uptight I uh, I have to agree with you on the uh, second one at least because I'm similar in style that I'm so passionate and I come out sometimes as aggressive mm -hmm. and to the point that I notice sometimes that people agree with me just not to contradict me <laughs> and when I say well you don't like that why don't you say something and it's like Whoa, like like yeah. like and, and, and it's just a situation I agree it with is, you it's yeah. just basically maybe saying something in a different way or a little softer because I, I I've seen situations where. I say something and people go along with my idea when they never agree with it from the beginning or, or they didn't like it, but they just didn't feel like they had the power or the, uh, I don't know, the strength or anything yeah. in personality to contradict me or something. So I, I kind of watch for that a little more and let other people just express their opinions too. So that's that's great that you know that. So let's fast forward now. And then uh, where do you see yourself in the next uh, 10, 15 years? Well, I, this is my last stop in my career. So hopefully in 10, 15 years, I'm starting to retire and doing what I'm doing on an expanded level and, and helping to 
do more of what I'm doing with the destination. You know, I help oversee the operations here. I'm helping mm-hmm. with new business development, tenant relations, and then managing three of the businesses here. Just doing more of the same mm-hmm. at, at a much higher level. Right now, there's a very small handful of us on the executive leadership team and right. and want to keep that same level of nimble, entrepreneurial, driven pace that we're mm-hmm. on now. Awesome. Well, Greg, this has been great. I uh, really appreciate your time. I've learned a lot. Thank and, you. Um, it was great. I, I look forward to maybe catching up with you in a few months again. Sounds good. And... Um, Thank you for your time. I uh, I was going to ask you where can people find more about the uh, aquarium and everything, but I will. Every show that we do has show notes on our webpage and everything where we put all the a little synopsis of the conversation, obviously, and then all the links to all your social media, website pages, everything else. So we'll definitely promote it so Great. people that go through all the podcast networks they can just click there and go to your website and everything else. So wonderful. Thank you for your time, and I will talk again soon. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>